Good morning, everyone. So like he said, my name is Emily McInnes. Um, I did get the, the little missionary bug from my parents. Um, and I just got back a couple days ago from an 11-month mission trip called the World Race. So the World Race is a trip run by an organization called Adventures in Missions. It's out of Gainesville, Georgia in the States. And it is a trip that took me and 21 other young people to 12 different countries around the world. So we went to three different continents and we got to serve people and just minister to them and share the gospel to people all over the world. And it was an incredible opportunity. So it is a mission trip, but it's also a discipleship training program. So it enabled me to learn a lot more about the Lord and how to live a life as a missionary, even when I'm not on the mission field. So what the World Race does is it takes a group of young people and it connects them to a local missionary that's already working in the area, like in the country or in the city. So instead of coming in and saying, hey, we're missionaries, we're going to do something to help this poor community, it connects us with people who are already doing work and building kingdom in that area. And so we got to partner with some incredible organizations. Like just a couple months ago, we were in the African country of Lesotho, which is kind of near the bottom. And we worked with an organization called Africa for Jesus. So what we did working with them is we went into the remote villages in this valley that we were staying in. And we got to meet with the grandmothers who run the households in these villages. A lot of times they're left with their grandchildren, sometimes one, sometimes four, five, six grandchildren. And their kids will leave the grandchildren with these grandmothers and they'll go to South Africa for better employment opportunities. But these grandmothers will not hear from their children or receive any support from them for months or sometimes even years. So these grandmothers are struggling to support all of these grandchildren and themselves in these really remote, um, poverty-stricken communities. And on top of the stresses of raising these grandchildren, there have been many instances in recent years of these grandmothers actually being murdered, and they don't know why. And so they're living in constant fear as well. And we got to go into these homes and sit with these grandmothers and just listen to them and hear their needs so that the organization that we were working with will eventually hopefully be able to help come beside them and support them. And we just got to sit with them and pray with them. Sometimes we completely introduced them to the gospel. They had never heard the name of Jesus. And sometimes they were already Christians and we were completely amazed and inspired by their faith. So it was a really amazing opportunity. In addition to things like that, where we went and did evangelism in villages, we also got to do things like um, when we were in um, Vietnam and Cambodia, we worked with schools. So we got to um, 
work with young children, and we got to share the gospel with them and just really encourage them and help teach them English to give them more opportunities in the future. And that was really cool. We also worked with a coffee farmer in Panama whose goal is to support 365 missionaries every year with the profits from his coffee farm. So we worked with all different types of organizations. We also did something that the organization calls ATL, or Ask the Lord. So my team got the opportunity to do this when we were in Indonesia. And <laughs> it was the most incredible month because instead of partnering with a specific organization, we got to partner with the Holy Spirit. And we got into the country and we sat together as a team and every day we would pray and say, okay, God, what do you have for us today? And every day was just a completely new adventure. We didn't really know where we were staying. We didn't know what we were going to do each day. But that brought us to a little noodle shop owned by a woman named Rose. And Vietnam is a country that is about 10% Christian. And they're very persecuted and oppressed because the government and different organizations really doesn't want Christians worshiping, so they put a bunch of restrictions on being able to have an organized church or anything like that. So it's very hard to be a Christian in Indonesia. But Rose and her family are Christians. So we got to spend several days just encouraging them and letting them know, like, you are not alone. We are here to support you. You are not fighting this battle by yourself. And we got to really encourage them and pour into them. And then a couple days later, we had to move because the hostel we were staying in was a little out of budget. And we ended up at this apartment that was attached to a shopping mall. And we, while exploring the mall one day, we ran into this man named Matthew. And he's a pastor of a church that just set up in the mall very recently. And we got to just support them and help them with whatever they needed to do to facilitate the move. And they were so encouraged by our help that they're actually planning to host future world race teams. So that was really cool to be kind of part of that. So we were able to have a really noticeable impact on some of the people that we got to partner with, both with the people we ministered to and with the hosts that we got to partner with. But this year altogether, the biggest thing that I took from it was the impact it had on me personally. I, I was just completely blown away by how much I grew and how much I learned. And I, I have no regrets about going, and saying yes to this opportunity really makes me want to say yes to more things in the future. So going forward, the next thing that I've said yes to is a five-month discipleship training program run by the same organization, so I'll be moving to the States for five months just to kind of learn more and to develop the skills I learned this year. Um, the kind of slogan for this program, it's called the Center for Global Action, and their kind of slogan is know yourself, lead yourself, and lead others. So it's kind of built on the principle that once you know who you are and who you know, 
like who you are in the Lord, then you can learn how to lead other people, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or working in business or doing missions long-term. So it'll kind of give me the tools I need to be able to do missions, whether I'm on the quote-unquote mission field or not. So I'm really excited about that. You know, it means more time away from my family. I have a little niece who's about to turn a year, and I haven't seen her since she was two weeks old. So that's really sad. It means more fundraising. Like, there's all these struggles that I'm going to come up against to do this. But it also means that I get to develop my intimacy with the Lord. I get to live in a fantastic Christ-centered community for five more months. And I get to live my life as the mission field. So I'm really excited. Uh, if you have any questions about the world race or the program I'm going into, um, if you're interested in supporting me in this next step or supporting someone who's doing the world race because it's an incredible life-changing program. Um, yeah, if you want to know any prayer requests, anything. If you just want to say hi, I'll be around after the service. So come hunt me down. Um, yeah, thank you. Just stand up for a second, Andrew. Is this working yet? Test, 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 one, two. Test, 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 one, two, one, two, one, two. No, okay. It's just that kind of morning. All right, well, let's all stand together and just change our position. And I want you to stretch out your hands toward Emily and Dad, come on up here, and, uh, and family, come on up here. Just, you guys can come on up here. Ted, Sharon, come on. And uh, this kind of thing doesn't happen without uh, a lot of help, support, and people working vigorously in the background. Amen? And, uh, you know, to go away for 11 months, you know, uh, my wife's let me go for as long as a month. That's been the limit. So uh, 11 months is a long time. And, uh, you know, um, you do realize that, that this kind of thing can happen more frequently. Okay. All right. Just, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a huge adjustment. And, Emily, we're just so proud of you. And uh, we're so proud of your mom and dad and the things that they've been able to accomplish. And to see it go another generation is awesome. And we're just so grateful for what God has done in your life. And so we just wanted to pray over you and bless you. Doesn't that sound like fun? So you just stretch your hands out towards Emily this morning. Father, we thank you so much for Emily and her life and the work that she has been able to do uh, in the last year. But, Lord, we just thank you the most for taking her on a journey, Lord, where she has learned so much about who she is, about what, Father, you have for her, about how she's gifted, how she's wired, how, Lord, uh, through your mercy and through your grace, that she's learned she can do all things through Christ who gives her strength. Father, we thank you, God, that, that you have burned your gospel, your uh, kingdom message into her heart, and that there's nothing the enemy can do to take that away from her, to extract that from her spirit. Father, we just thank you that, God, you have got her in the palm of your hands, and I know that uh, probably if, if, if Jim and Sherry knew that she was going to land in Indonesia without knowing where she was going or where she was staying, they'd have probably said you're not allowed to go. Uh, that would be every parent's uh, nightmare. Uh, but we just thank you, Lord, for your grace on their lives. And we thank you, Lord, for 
a, a ministry that's willing to say, whatever you want to do, Lord, uh, as the Lord leads, we're going to go. And so, Father, we just bless her today. We thank you for the work that you've done in her life, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Amen. Wow. Well, <clears throat> see if this works this morning. So far, it's not looking promising. <laughs> is that that computer or is that supposed to be my computer? What's that? We'll just see what's going on here. Which one is that? That's mine? All right. There we go. All right. Okay. We got something working this morning. Woo. All right. Wow. All right. Breakthroughs coming everywhere today. Hallelujah. All right. Well, Father, we just give this morning to you that we ask God uh, that as we uh, enter into the uh, Advent season this morning, that, Father, uh, each of us would be on a personal journey of uh, just uh, taking some time, even if you can take just a few minutes a day and rest in your presence. And, Father, prepare our hearts uh, daily to receive you, to reflect on how the world received you in the beginning, and, to Father, to prepare our hearts for when you come again. And, Father, we thank you for uh, the work that you have done in our hearts, and we celebrate you this season in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many here are Starbucks drinkers? All right. How, how many are Tim Hortons drinkers? Oh, man, the Starbucks drinkers, we still have a lot of work to do. We got, we got, we got a lot of work to do. How many McDonald's co coffee drinkers? See how McDonald's has taken over from Tim Hortons in just a few short years? It's absolutely amazing, uh, the power of marketing. Wow. Um, well, you know, uh, every year it seems there's a deep controversy around Starbucks Christmas cup, right? I don't know if you've, I, I went back and looked at all the cups. Did you know their first cup was purple? Did you know that? Their first Starbucks Christmas cup uh, was purple. Uh, I don't know if they were zeroing in on the fact that, you know, purple's a color of royalty. I don't know. But the first one was purple. They didn't get around to, to having a red cup for about three years. Um, then, uh, you know, remember, you guys remember the 2015 when they come out with the plain red cup? And, in, and, and even Donald Trump joked that maybe we should boycott uh, uh, Starbucks because they were taking Christmas off the cup. It was just plain red. Do you remember that? Uh, it was pretty funny. Anyway, they've, um, it was called an unfestive cup because it was just plain red. Um, then last year, they started a new trend. They had four cups last year, and they've got four again this year. So uh, there's got to be something in there to please everybody. And, and, and it just shows you how some silly thing becomes a focus when it's not really the focus. Do you know what I'm saying? How that we get wrapped up in the, the color of a cup when we're really talking about the birth of a Savior. Someone say amen. Uh, and yet, people get obsessed by this. And, and some of the worst people getting obsessed about it are Christians who walk in and rebuke the Starbucks manager as if it's their own personal fault that the cup was just plain red and didn't have, and didn't have like snowflakes on it or something. You know what I'm saying? Uh, like, yep, they personally designed the cup. It is their fault. And, uh, and, you know, those kinds of things don't bode well for us when we get our focus off of what it's really all about. It, it makes for some pretty silly conversations, right? 
some very silly conversations indeed. But the, this year, uh, we decided that we were going to have for a theme this year during Christmas, the theme of wrapped in red. And when we think of, of red, we often think of Christmas. There's a good case to be made for the color of red, uh, you know, for, for Christmas, obviously, because as the good old band Petra sang years ago, red is the color of the blood that flowed down the face of someone who loved you so. Do you guys remember that song? How many remember the color song by Petra? There's like four people in the whole place. Uh, wow. But anyway, make, you know, I was going to play it this morning. I thought nobody here would even know who they are. But uh, man, am I getting old. Whew. Wow, that's sad. Tell me, you remember the song, Mark. Do you remember the song? Can't help me, eh? Just, just, just Sheldon and I were the only. Lyndon, Lyndon's got it as well. They're, Wayne and Cheryl, all right, we got a few, all right. Oh, praise the Lord, okay. Everybody that knows it's over 50, that's pretty much the way it works, okay. Well, <laughs> anyway, uh, today probably red is the color most people associate with the holidays, but not because of the blood of Christ. There have been other things that have moved in there. Obviously, the number one thing being good old jolly Saint Nick. And Saint Nick in his red suit with the white fur and all the rest of it. And uh, did you know that Saint Nick was not always red, though? He was, uh, he was tan. He was white uh, in his outfit. It was all different colors. Uh, but he's generally depicted nowadays in a red suit with white trim on the collar and all the rest of it. And this image became uh, really popular in the 19th century uh, due to uh, the influence of the poem, uh, A Visit from St. Nicholas, also known as what? The Night Before Christmas. And uh, that poem was written in 1823. And interestingly enough, it doesn't mention anything about the color of his suit. It just says he was dressed all in fur. It doesn't say anything about the color. But in the 1960s, uh, a guy for Harper's Magazine actually depicted it Santa in a red suit, and red kind of started to infiltrate in 1860s uh, as a result of that. But then in the 1930s, red became the official color because of who? Coca-Cola, that's right. Uh, there was a, a gentleman who was an artist. Uh, he was con uh, uh, put on contract by uh, Coke to design a bunch of ads, and so he designed all of these, these ads, and you've all seen them over the years, Santa Claus drinking a, a Coca-Cola and all the rest of it. And, and the color of Coca-Cola became the color of Santa's suit. And uh, as a result of that, you've got people like this dear lady over here today wearing her, 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 her Santa hat, and it's red and white. And so you see that all the time nowadays because of marketing. Isn't it a wonderful thing? Because of marketing. And... Uh, the history of this stuff is kind of interesting, how it happens and how it becomes part of a story. Um, but red is not simply the color of an elf in a, in a little jolly suit, right? It's, uh, we have to understand that the blood, the blood of Christ, is the centerpiece of the holidays. That the, the blood that was in the veins of the baby born in the manger is the blood that would flow down the cross, and it was the blood that the Bible says would pay for a ransom for your sin and mine. And this is the, the reason why we, we wanted to call this year Wrapped in Red, because the reality is that the greatest testament to the love of Christ is, uh, for us is seen that he, as the Bible says, no greater love has anyone than this that they would lay down their life for their friends. 
that they would give their life. And, and when I was a kid, you know, uh, I, I remember so many times, you know, we'd drive by a house and they'd see a cross up there and people would go, what's, what's that got to do with Christmas? But it has everything to do with Christmas because you can't separate the birth from the death. You can't separate, you know, the, the, the Christ child from the, the 33-year-old man who hung upon a cross uh, in Golgotha. Amen? They're inseparable images, and yet we try to separate them all the time, you know? Uh, what's the, saw the clip of that video from, what was the movie, uh, where Will Ferrell prays, Dear Baby Jesus, and all he wants to do is talk to baby, t- what's it called? It's a racing movie. Talladega Nights, yeah. And, uh, and, and then they're like, you do realize he's a man, you know, and he goes, yeah, but I like the baby Jesus much more. And, and I think that's probably true of most people in society. They, they, they like the baby Jesus, but the Jesus on the cross, that disturbs them a little bit. But, uh, you know, the baby Jesus, that's okay. And, uh, and so they, they miss the, there's a disconnect between one and the other. And this morning I want to help uh, reestablish the connection of the celebration of the birth of a baby and the cross. Today and this whole month we're going we're gonna to reinforce the connection between the two. And then when we have our, our Christmas Eve service uh, and we celebrate together, uh, our, our prayer is that we will be celebrating not just uh, the birth of a baby, but we'll be celebrating the deliverer who came for all of humanity. Amen? And gave his life for everyone. Now, I played this video last year, but I want to play it again this morning if you can make sure the audio is up there, Sheldon. And, uh, and you know, because many of you may not have heard this before, got a lot of visitors here this morning, but it helps make the point of the disconnect that we often experience around this time of year. I wonder what it would be like to be born in a manger. Yeah. wonder whatever happened to baby Jesus. He, he grew up. What? Wait. So you're saying that the baby Jesus Christmas story is the same as the adult walk on water Jesus? Yeah. Thanks, honey. Wow, I just never really put the two concepts together. <laughs> Wonder what happened to that guy, huh? <laughs> he, he went to the cross. That's the same guy? Yeah. So what you're saying is baby Jesus is the same as cross Jesus? Yeah. I mean, there's some time in there, right? I mean, he, he grew up, he taught people, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and came back to life, and, you know, now he lives in our hearts. That's the same guy? The Jesus that lives in our hearts? Okay, I was really, oh, wow. Okay, I never really put all those guys together, you know? Only one guy. I tell you this. Here's an idea. Maybe we stop just making Christmas all just this once a year isolated thing, but we make it an ongoing story about the salvation in our hearts and lives. Up top. It's the idea. (laughs) 
picture, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I came across a, an article, and uh, it had this quote in it. It said, properly understood, the message of Christmas confronts before it comforts. It disturbs before it delights. And I read that, and I thought, what does he mean? You know, it it comforts, I should say it confronts before it comforts, and it disturbs before it delights. And, uh, you know, as you think about it, the whole story of Christmas is a disturbing story. That God, God decides to place his perfect son in the womb of a virgin knowing that that would be quite the controversial move in that day and age. Are you hearing me? That's a disturbing story. Uh, You know, the reality is, is that she, according to culture and according to practice, could have been stoned for being involved outside of wedlock, especially when she was betrothed to a man who was not the father. That's a disturbing story. And then the fact that, that as she was heavy with child and, great and, and, and greatly pregnant, they had to travel from their town of Nazareth to Bethlehem to be registered, right? And so, you know, they make the trek and, you know, uh, all on, uh, on you know, uh, uh, back of a mule. It's not like they just jumped in their car and drove down the 401 and they were there. Uh, you know, they had to trek and probably in a caravan for safety uh, reasons because... Uh, the reality is, is that it was very dangerous to make that kind of a trek in those days. And so, again, another disturbing element of the story is that the mother of the Savior of the world had to make such a dangerous, difficult journey at the very end of her pregnancy. And then, of course, there's the fact that when they get to Bethlehem, there's no place for them to stay. Every place, every inn, every place you can think of is, is booked, is rented. And so they... The, one innkeeper finally says, you can, you can use the stable. And so baby Jesus was born under what would be considered, even in those days, to be barbaric standards. Right? Are you hearing me? And then placed in a, in a feeding trough for cattle uh, in, a, in such difficult circumstances, disturbing circumstances, was Jesus born. But, you know, it wasn't until years later that I realized just how difficult it really must have been. Because if you follow the story, Jesus is born, and the wise men came. And we don't know when they came, but they came sometime in the first couple years of Jesus' life. And they, they end up going to Herod and asking him, you know, and his, you know, uh, uh, where, where the Savior might be. And they said they've been following the star in Bethlehem and they talked to him about it. And then he feels threatened, right? You guys remember the story? So he says to the wise men, when you come back, you know, you got to tell me everything you observed here. But the, the angel Lord speaks to them. They, they go by a different route. They don't stop back in on Herod. Herod, enraged with jealousy and fear for his throne, knowing that this king has been born, he orders the execution of every male child 
two years in age and under. That's a disturbing story. That's a disturbing story. And then it wasn't until years later I got thinking about the fact that when they, you know, they were gone for a couple years and then the angel of the Lord spoke to, to Joseph and said, it's okay to go home now, Herod's gone, right? So they made their way back to Nazareth. And then it occurred to me that Jesus would have went to school or he would have uh, been with his family members or whatever and there would have been no other boys his age in the community because they would have all been executed. And can you imagine the first time Jesus had to go to his parents and say, you know, how come there's nobody else seven years old in the village for me to play with? Why? And the parents having to say, well, that's a really good question. How do you explain to your child that the reason there's no other kids there because, is because of you? See, these are some of the disturbing elements of the story that we often miss. And, and we miss them because we forget that the baby born wasn't just some beautiful little story about a little goodly baby. It was the story of God stepping into humanity. It was the story of God coming to earth and literally shape, shaping, reshaping, I should say, and shifting all of the kingdoms of this earth. That when Jesus came, he came as royalty to, uh, to not just redeem the hearts of mankind, but to literally shift the entire world. And later when he became uh, an adult, he was able to proclaim that message. He was able to say, I came to establish God's kingdom. That's the reason I'm here, is to proclaim that message. And it's also the reason why the, the, both the Romans and the Jews uh, despised Jesus and wanted him out of the picture is because they understood that his message was subversive. They understood that he was not some kind of, oh, just go and hug your neighbor message, but that Jesus came with a message to change the world. To literally, as we sing in the hallelujah chorus, right, until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. We sing it. If you've ever sang it in Bible college, when our graduation, we had to stand up and we had to all learn all the parts for the Hallelujah Chorus and Handel's Messiah and sing it at our graduation. And so you had a 400-voice choir singing this thing, and it sounded pretty cool and impressive. But that's what the song actually says. It's, it, you know, they, they got the understanding that, that we were meant to change the world. And somehow, the church has gotten off of its, its edge, if you will. And we've become this group of people who, well, you know, it's just about what's, what, what's in here. And, and, and we don't want to be offensive to anybody. And, uh, and we don't want to you know, cause anybody any kind of discomfort. And so our most sacred holidays get taken over by a jolly man in a red suit and a rabbit with a basket full of eggs. I don't get me wrong. I'm, oh, so you're, you're telling us we shouldn't, we shouldn't tell our kids about Santa Claus and we shouldn't watch. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not telling you to go out there and become a religious zealot. 
That doesn't really accomplish much. I'm just saying that you have an opportunity at Christmas to tell people what the real story is all about. Amen? <clears throat> and the, the article that I was reading was uh, telling you about was written in 1992 by uh, William H. Smith in the World Magazine, which is a Christian magazine. And, and he said, uh, the actual title of the article was, Christmas is Disturbing. Any real understanding of the Christmas message will disturb anyone. Anyone. And I'd like to read as I close this morning. I just want to read a par- portion of it if I could today. Is that all right? Can I do that? And, uh, and then I'm going to close it. We're going to have the baby dedication now that everybody's here. <laughs> uh, this is what he said. He said, many people who otherwise ignore God and church have some religious feeling or feel they ought to at this time of year. So they make their way to a church service or a Christmas program. And when they go, they come away feeling vaguely warmed or at least better for having gone, but not disturbed. Why aren't people disturbed by Christmas? One reason is our tendency to sanitize the birth narrative. We romanticize the story of Mary and Joseph rather than deal with the painful dilemma they faced when the Lord chose Mary to be the virgin who would conceive her child by the power of the Holy Spirit. We beautify the scene, not coming to terms with the stench of the stable, the poverty of the parents, the hostility of Herod. Don't miss my point. There is something truly comforting and warming about the Christmas story, but it comes from understanding the reality, not from denying it. Most of us also have not come to terms with the baby in the manger. We sing glory to the newborn king, but do we realize that the baby lying in the manger is appointed by God to be the king, to be either the savior or judge of all people? He is the most threatening person. Malachi foresaw this coming, and he said, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. As long as we keep him in the manger and feel the sentimental feelings we have for babies, Jesus doesn't disturb us. But once we understand that his coming mean, what his coming means for every one of us, either salvation or condemnation, then he disturbs us deeply. What should be just as disturbing is the awful work Christ had to do to accomplish the salvation of his people. Yet his very name, Jesus, testifies of that work. The baby was born so that he who had no sin would become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The baby's destiny from the moment of his conception was hell, hell in the place of sinners. When I look at the main, into the manger, I come away shaken as I realize again that he was born to pay the unbearable penalty for my sins. That's the message of Christmas. God reconciled the world to himself through Christ. Man's sin has alienated him from God, man's, and man's reconciliation with God is possible only through faith in Christ. Christmas is disturbing. That's quite the article, isn't it? I mean, Christmas, don't get me wrong, Christmas is also an incredibly wonderful celebration, but properly understood, the, as I said, the message it confronts us before it comforts us. It, uh, it's disturbing. It's disturbing. It is a story that is meant to shake the world and meant to shake us to our core. The purpose of Christ's birth was to live a sinless life, suffer as our substitute on the cross, satisfy the wrath of God, defeat death, secure our forgiveness and salvation, and establish his kingdom. That's it. 
Christmas is about God, the Father, the offended party, taking the initiative to send his only begotten son to offer his life as an atoning sacrifice for my sin so that we might be forgiven. He concluded his column and he said this. He said, only those who have been profoundly disturbed to the point of deep repentance are able to receive the tidings of comfort, peace, and joy that Christmas proclaims. Many people tell me that they, they have no peace this time of year. They find it difficult. They find it hard. And, and I, I can understand that. I mean, because culturally, it's become all about family, and it's become all about, you know, feasting and, and, and celebrating and, and all the rest of it. And that's certainly one aspect of it. But, but it becomes difficult for people who've lost someone, people who've experienced in the past year alienation or hurt or any of those things. However, let me say that if we really grasp what Christmas is about, if we truly understand the gravity of the situation, if we truly understand what was accomplished when Jesus came and was born in that manger, if that really is at the heart of it, and all the rest of it, the trappings are less significant than the reality, then that buttresses us so that we're able to celebrate no matter what's happened in our life in the last year. No matter how difficult the journey's been, no matter how busy it's been, no matter how hard it's been, no matter what we've experienced, no matter how, even if we've suffered, if we're captivated by how much Jesus suffered for us, then our suffering, the Bible says, seems like no suffering at all. That's the kind of perspective that kept someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was arrested for his faith in World War II by the Nazis and was thrown into a, a concentration camp that kept him writing and encouraging and smuggling his letters of encouragement out to people all over the world, writing about family and about discipleship and about love, even though he was in a, stuck in a concentration camp. He was tortured regularly, denied food, weighed probably only about 110 pounds the day that when they went to take a woman away to the gas chamber, he said, no, take me instead. And he was dragged away, and he gave his life to, as a substitute for that woman, and a week later, the camp was liberated. He celebrated a few Christmases in prison. Paul celebrated some in prison. The disciples celebrated many of them in prison. And their celebration was, Jesus has come. And every drop of blood that they shed, every lash of a whip, every day that they spent denied the comforts of life, they recognized that I am doing what God has called me to do to establish his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? That's the true story of Christmas. And so if you drive by someone's house and you see that they've got a cross up at Christmas, they're either confused or they get it. Nowadays, it's you no know, roll of the dice which one it is, but uh, there may be a good chance that they get it, that they, you can't separate. You can't separate the cross from the cradle. Amen? Can't be done. Well, you know, we all have precious gifts here this morning. And, and, you know, I think a baby dedication as we celebrate Advent and the coming of our Savior is a very appropriate thing because, let's face it, let's face it, there isn't 
one of us here that would be able to face the dilemma that God the Father had to face when he handed over his only begotten son to take care of the sins of the world. As the Bible says, well, maybe for a good man we might be willing to die, right? Or for a righteous man, possibly. But the Bible says that Jesus gave his life while we were still what? Sinners. <laughs> in other words, while we were still running hard away from him, while we were still in denial, while we were still rolling around in our whatever it is that we were rolling around in. That Jesus gave his life for us, amen? The father had to release his son. Well, this morning, dedication uh, services are really about mom and dad. I mean, we all focus on the baby. We all look at the children and go, oh, they're so cute, and they are. And as the parents of 10 grandchildren, I can tell you, my goodness, they are cute. And, uh, you know, and the ones from the Dowling lineage, probably more cuter than any other ones in the world. That's probably just a personal opinion, but, uh, but you know, it, it bears repeating because it certainly has settled itself into my heart. But the point that I'm getting this morning is this, that we love our children very much. And when you bring your children before the Lord to be dedicated, as we are this morning, that that dedication is about offering as a mom and a dad our hearts to the Lord to raise this child to know and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let me uh, exit this. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put their pictures up on the screen. Everybody say, aw. And, <laughs> and as I, I call you forward, uh, if mom and uh, family and baby and could all come on up and any extended family you want uh, with them as well, that would be great. And, uh, and just so you know, uh, I didn't put ours first as the cutest or anything like that. I just did it in alphabetical order. All right. So just to make it so that, you know, hey, just, just so I wasn't, you know, given any preferential treatment, uh, there, it's in alphabetical order. So this is not a scale of cuteness or anything like that, just, just so you understand. All right, here we go. All right, so first we got the Brant family. Look at that. Isn't that awesome? You guys should come on up. Not, not bad, eh? Check this out. Look at that. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Little Leighton Rhonda Brandt. Wow. All right. Up next, the Campbell Moreau family. Where are you guys? Come on up here. There they come. All right, here we go. Check that out. Isn't that a great shot? Now, now check out little Reagan here. Here we go. Yeah, uh, look at first Halloween. Good haul. Now, honestly, how much how much parental tax was taken there? Because you know, one hundred. That's what I figured. Because yeah, that you know, good good call though. You know, you, you use the child as leverage, and then you get all the goodies. Not a bad move. Not a bad move. Look at that. Amen. That's little Reagan Rochelle. Hallelujah. All right. Pretty awesome. <laughs> All right, next. 
We have the Dowling family. And I love this picture, by the way, guys. Fantastic. That is the most accurate photo of the Dowling family, all right? Ryan tickling Maddie, Cooper laughing at it, and Leighton crying. I mean, or not Leighton, I should say. Lachlan, he's, he's crying. And I think that is fantastic. And, uh, of course, Ava, she's just holding on for dear life. That's great. And here we go. Here's little Lachlan Rooney. Check that out. Isn't that great? He's ready for the season. <laughs> I love it. Okay, then next we have the Green family. All right. All right. Come on up here, guys. Look at that. And check out Mr. Timothy James right here. Isn't that great? Timothy at 11 months. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. Wow. Look at that. Whew. All right. Now, this one is that Kennefast family. <clears throat> I was like, do you guys have a picture, like, of all the family together? And they're like, you know, no. And I said, what do you mean, no? You're photographers. And they're like, yeah, but we're always on the other side of the camera. So... <laughs> You guys, come on, Amanda, can you guys come? Yeah, I was going to say, come on down here with these guys. That's good. All right, just makes it easier for mom and dad when we're praying. Okay, and then look at this. This is, this is little Jolene May Doris Kennefast right here. <laughs> that one on the right was taken like literally like, what, an hour after she was born, something like that. And I like the little smirk on her face. I, I realize she was probably just passing gas, but that is a, that's, that, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, then we've got the O'Coin family. You guys want to make your way up here, wherever they're hiding? There they are. <laughs> and we got Viola Gail O'Coin. Look at that. Now check these photos out. Look at those eyes. My word. Yes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's what I mean. You took that photo. You took the one of the family too, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. Well, sorry about that. Exactly what I mean, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, never buy a car from a mechanic because it was probably the most neglected car in the neighborhood, right? <laughs> Here we go. You're going to, how many do you have? We have 10, just so you know. Uh, just... Uh, Four, I think. The Proctor family. Only, only two families, though. Three families. Here we go. Uh, oh, sorry about that. That was a little quick. Didn't get to see who it was. Sorry, I got to. There we go. There's Kevin and Jolene right there. All right. Where are they? Are they not here? No? Oh, that's too bad. I mean, because look, look at this. There's little Kimberly when she was a baby. And there's Kimberly now. Isn't that awesome? And then this is little Sophie. Look at that, eh? You'll have to let them all know you enjoyed their photos, you know. Look at that. Isn't that great? All right. 
And then we get to the Sticklins. I love this family photo. The baby is there in the ultrasound. Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? It's a great picture. All right. Come on, guys. Come on, don't be shy. <laughs> and here's little Vivian Clara. Look at that. Wow. Amanda, did you take that one too? <laughs> oh, fantastic. Look at that. And then last but certainly not least, we have the Wales family. All right. Amen. And then we have little Marcus. And if you guys don't know Marcus's story, it's an amazing, amazing story. Little Marcus David Elijah Wales was born with only one lung. And what's that? No lungs. And grew the lungs after. Everybody say after. After birth. And the doctors said it's an incredible miracle. And uh, today he uh, terrorizes the parents constantly because he won't sit still. Uh, but uh, he is an incredible miracle of God. And we're just so grateful for what the Lord has done. Amen. And, uh, well, that is quite a lineup, wouldn't you say? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, um, what we're going to do. <clears throat> yep. We have couples from uh, leadership in the church that are going to. Come up and pray with you guys as we form all the way around the building here. One of the good things is, is you know, Martin and Jen, you might be last, but your picture stays up the longest, which is really cool. So, uh, you know, there are, there are benefits to being the last in the alphabet. Like, I, I get it. Uh, anyway, I'm going to read a few words here this morning, and then I'm going to read some challenges to the parents and then to the grandparents and extended family here as well this morning. And, uh, and then we're going to pray and offer these children to the Lord. Um, each of you will receive a, you'll have like a certificate, talks about the na- what the name means and some research is done that way. And you can have that to, to, to take home. But uh, really this is about you, mom and dad. So I want you to pay close attention right now. The Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord and that they're a gift that is merely on loan to us. We're to raise them and to love them and to help them understand the power of the Lord. The Bible speaks frequently about the beauty of parenthood. The relationship of, of, of God is God the Father and his Son. And furthermore, the Father himself in his infinite wisdom ordained that that Son should be born as a baby uh, as we celebrate this season. Uh, Jesus came and was raised by earthly parents, uh, Joseph and Mary. The duty in charge of parenthood is therefore sacred. It's an important calling. And it's not to be entered into lightly but reverently, for when we become parents, we enter the highest calling we could possibly enter in this world. It's more important than career, more important than anything else. Today, when it seems everybody else is driven by money and people are confused about who they are, we need to pause and reflect on the importance of our role as parents. If we want our children to grow up to be confident, secure people, then we have to teach our children whose they are, the Lord's, right? Who they are, speak into their identity, and to whom they're called to walk with. And in other words, choose your friends well, choose the influences in your life well. That's how we are to raise our children. It was the practice of parents in Bible times to dedicate their children to the Lord. Hannah and Elkanah dedicated Samuel to the Lord. Jochebed gave Moses over the Lord for his protection. Jesus' parents took him as a child as required by law and dedicated him to the Lord as well. In Mark's 
gospel, the 10th chapter, we read that people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, he put his hands on them, and he blessed them. Jesus blessed the children, and he spoke woefully to anybody that would cause their destruction. Surely the heart of God is one of love and devotion and compassion and concern for the welfare of children. So be clear, this morning's not a baptism. We, we proclaim and believe that baptism is a public demonstration of our confession of faith, a faith that you as parents have the responsibility to endeavor to lead this child to at a very young age. Today is more about you as mom and dad, as family members, than it is about precious, this precious child. And although these young ones will not remember this day, I don't think, uh, their future will be shaped by the commitment and the pledge that you make as parents and family and before these witnesses today. So therefore, I challenge and charge parents and grandparents to, and extended family today to make a solemn commitment to the Lord. First, I want to speak to parents. I want you to answer, I do, to this uh, pledge today. Do you pledge this day to love and honor uh, one another, to commit yourself again to your uh, spouse, your partner, on the, that you, the commitments that you've made, the love that you've made to them, knowing that the environment of your love for one another is the greatest picture of God's love that your children will ever have? If that is you, say, I do. And do you pledge to devote yourself in fear before the Lord to love and protect this young life, knowing that he or she is a gift from God released to your care? If you do, say, I do. And do you pledge that you will instruct this child to love and to know the Lord and at a young age seek to lead them to a confession of faith in Christ, teaching them always to pray, read the Bible, study the Scriptures, say, I do. Now, grandparents, as grandparents, and family, do you pledge that you will support these parents in the task of parenting these precious children, seeking to encourage and guide them with your love? Answer, we do. And do we further pledge that we will endeavor to train and instruct these young lives from the Word and help lead them to a confession of faith? Uh, answer, we do. Amen. Well, according to your confession... We're going to pray over these children today. And I'm going to ask you as a congregation, if you just to stretch your hands out towards us this morning as we pray. And uh, we're going to offer these children to the Lord en masse this morning. When we have one or two, I like to pick them up myself and parade every child around. But obviously with this many, I'm not going to be able to do that. So uh, anyone who's praying with someone, come on up with us here this morning. And, and uh, we've got elders and leadership who are going to come and pray with us. And uh, that is awesome. So if you just bear with us for a couple minutes as we pray, that would be fantastic.